Hello, and welcome to the Sonic Fruit Film Podcast, where we aim to celebrate movies through the simple act of talking about our favourites. I'm Bennett Maples, and today I'm joined by the eternal light that is Sam Hode, media academic and picture house employee, and the wingless flight that is Carl Cole, composer and Sonic Fruit's resident Foley artist. In this episode, we're discussing heat, which was not an exploration of the first law of thermodynamics that we'd hoped for, but is, in fact, a cracking movie. So we're talking about Heat, which is, quite frankly, always in my top movies. It's one of my favourite films of all time. So you might have to shut me up. Um, But it has a lot of haters. Not haters, but I know a lot of people that don't necessarily like it. And I'm going to go out on a limb from the beginning and say it's because it's long. Yeah. Which not many mentioned. Not many films, I think of that kind were that long in that era at this no at this time i mean now it would not be uncommon for a film to be heading in the three-hour direction yeah um because films want to try and be epic but yeah it was strange i think for a filmmaker to have that kind of control and not have the studio say we love it cut another 15 minutes out of it and we'll put it out yeah and i would also say on that note i found it long the first time i saw it I remember actually thinking it was flagging a little bit. It was one of those films that I came out of and went, oh, I loved that, but I wasn't sure at the time that I was watching it. Well, I came out thinking, what was that? Because I saw it at the cinema, and admittedly I would have been, you know, m- mid-teens and possibly not equipped to appreciate it on the levels that it, you know, desires. But um, all I remember thinking was that shootout was amazing, but God, it went on, and yeah. Obviously since revised that opinion <laughs> but um yeah it felt long at the cinema definitely for me what happens is there's about 20 minutes 30 minutes in the middle that probably most filmmakers would take out and i think these days you would take out but it gives you so much depth of, of character when it all starts to unravel at the end when it all starts to unfold the amount that you find you care for the characters and i'm sure it's because you've spent that extra bit of time with them yep. you've seen them through those extra few bits um, there's lots of sequences I mean um, Ashley Judd's having an affair I mean in terms of the main plot of the film that's not really necessary but it's a catalyst for how they're able to try and get her on side at the end um, so yeah I find it deeply rewarding because it's so long and this is one of the very few films that I've ever said that about. Generally, I'm I'm very in favour of taking that extra twenty minutes out. Um, but Carl, you you said you looked at it and went, oh, three hours." Yeah, yeah, it is long, but with today's mindset on films, it's it doesn't feel that long now. So maybe yeah, you could say it was maybe ahead of its time in that way. The fact that depth of character, depth of storytelling is there, mm-hmm. so that when it for me, the, old, the the kind of climax of the film isn't at the end. It's it's about I don't know half an hour from the end. Um, the big bank shootout well, that, scene. I mean, that shootout, is, we, as you say, is very much the highlight in terms of there being any sort of action. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's quite a long way from the because end. I think that's ultimately it's that point that you know what's going to happen in the end. You know um, that it's all come crashing down for for the bad guys and you know you know how the whole thing is going to resolve mm. but i think it rewards the viewer and i think a lot of films certainly of that era were very 
90 minutes on the dot, um, lots of explosions, not that much in the way of depth of character. Certainly when it came to that sort of bombastic action film, um, we're talking, we're very deep in the era of Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal movies. So, you know, I think Heat stands up pretty well Which in light of that. Yeah, coming out here. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, well, I think I think that's absolutely true. It, I mean, it, and it, I think any filmmaker would probably pretty much say if you're making a genre piece now, Heat changed everything. Um, I mean, that shootout was a big thing. I remember at the time. I mean, I didn't see it at the cinema. I saw it actually on video, but I remember that being talked about. I remember, um, you know, very much in, on the release of the film, that was the scene. This was in a period where people actually talked about film in a you know in a new sense um you know that was that was quite a big deal it's very visceral um i mean there's that incredible music cue clicking on, along underneath it but it doesn't you know it, it isn't pushed in the mix like no, it, it would be no, if and i can relate what it was like in the cinema I, i've never and haven't since this was the abc on prince wells road in norwich which yeah. was you know not a high-tech cinema but the sound was absolutely amazing the gunfire which still you know really rumbles on on telly but in the cinema context and like you say you know that that track underneath but the gunfire i've never experienced sound like that in ever since you know so that shows quite how technically amazing it was yeah. i had and to then... strain my ears to listen for the music cue sometimes in that film because the music is so low in the mix and there's other times where it's a really dynamic the whole mix is yeah. really dynamic the um they're not afraid for dialogue to be very quiet and yeah the music is very very uh, very very quiet yeah. certainly by today's standards but i think it was then as well, well I, mean... I think nowadays this would almost certainly have been scored by Hans zimmer and it would have a very sort of big um, you know, traditional explosive uh, score that mm -hmm. would accompany the action on the screen, and and the composer Elliot Goldenthal has done it's an incredible job because most of the time he's just very subtly playing what's going on on screen, and actually there's scenes where I would have expected there to be music, and there isn't. Mm -hmm. um, there's an amazing scene right in the middle of the film where they meet up and go for a coffee. Absolutely. Which, yeah. I mean, the fact that I'm even suggesting that, you know, the two principal characters um, who are enemies meet up and just go and have a chat yeah. makes it seem very banal and uh, rubbish. But uh, it's amazing. And right towards the end of that scene, there's some really subtle, there's a really subtle cue that comes in that actually is really sentimental. It's very kind of... Because they start to open up, they talk mm -hmm. about their dreams, they talk about the problems they're having with their families and things. And in terms of character development, for me, that was the scene that completely opens the film up. And also score-wise, it it's just... Such, it is a romantic moment in, yeah. a, in the sense that the empathy that has developed between them, yeah. you know, has suddenly become an issue. You know that, you know, these two are going to face each other again and they're going to have to... Did you know that actually happened? Do you know that the criminal um, Macaulay I think his name is was a real guy um, a real criminal and the investigating officer the policeman who was trying to track him down actually met with him and had a coffee and apparently there you did know that I see I thought that I thought I was going to blow you away by I'll my tell you why I know that. I'm going to reach over to my uh, oh your heat encyclopedia my BFI uh, modern classics here which I have <laughs> read although probably most of it I've forgotten otherwise I could be much more insightful today but and I knew that little yeah. fact watching so yeah, he scene. was a consultant on the whole film. Really? But, yeah. Um, I knew that fact watching that scene, and yet it felt so natural 
and apparently word for word very close to the actual dialogue that they spoke to each other mm-hmm. so um yeah fascinating really fascinating and a really pivotal moment in the film for yeah. me well the heart of the film in the sense of that sentiment of there's much more that unites us than divides us they're basically two halves of the same person they're you know yeah. they're doing exactly the same but it's, thing, it's the but story of in... two men obsessed with their work isn't it Absolutely. um mm-hmm. and how they both fall on either side of the fence i guess which is part of again what you were saying about that last half hour when everything starts to unravel um that it's already been revealed to us that basically it's not going to go well for them mm. we already know that but we care we're not just rooting for the cops it's not a standard kind of cops and robbers where you're like oh yeah the good guy's going to take down the bad guy yeah you kind of don't want them to take down the bad guy well the real villain is the uh is wayne grow wayne grow yeah. yeah he's the real villain for me in the whole thing yeah absolutely. because he's the one that's unhinged and you know, doesn't live by the code exactly so um and it's ultimately him that brings it all to a head mm-hmm. so because um, one of the more interesting parts, or one of the interesting parts, I think they're probably all really interesting, but um, Val Kilmer, I mean, we'll come probably back to his role as a whole, but the scene at the end where he pulls up outside the house and he looks up and he's so happy to see Ashley Judd and he thinks, like, they've got away scot-free and then she just motions to him and he has to get back in the car and leave. Mm. And as he gets to the end of the uh, road there's just a shot looking at his face and it doesn't do anything and he doesn't say anything and he doesn't really pull an expression but all of the film has built to he has nowhere to go and nothing to do and his life is just you know empty it's just such a powerful and this is what moment. i th- why i think i didn't get it when i was younger i don't think i was mature enough or equipped enough you know it's a real it's a psychological thriller and i suppose at the time I, you don't understand films on that level when you're that age or whatever and it's only since you know as i've got older um that the drama of that and and you know that i i mean i knew that pacino and de niro were going to face off in this scene because that was a lot of the pre uh hype press about it mm-hmm. and when it came i was like well it's just two guys you know you know and yeah um but i think it's a real when i was young like they were adult films kind of thing films that you know my mum and dad would watch and I just used to think oh they're for adults you know and this is a real I think film for adults and I don't want that to sound like self-aggrandizing you know but you have to I think you you have to appreciate it on a very it's a very serious film I mean there's complex issues at play isn't there Mm -hmm. there's there's I think there's certain things that you only really appreciate as 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 a mature adult um and that's nothing to do with the guns and the violence and the bloodshed and that ironically you know you can understand Mm -hmm. that once you're 12 exactly. these days um so but it's the it's the deeper themes that are at play within that film which i find fascinating so mm. and it is brilliantly acted isn't it well yeah let's talk about that that because i mean it's an incredible cast um most of whom were probably at their peak i mean we i just talked about val kilmer um i mean he's you know down the billing which at this stage at this time in his career was you know pretty unheard of he was you know, he was a lead actor. Mm. It's going to happen when you're up against Pacino and De Niro, though, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, sure. So, yeah, absolutely. But then, like, so um, his crew is uh, Tom Sizemore, is it? Tom yeah. Sizemore, who, you know, has not got on to do much more, but at that time was a really solid, great actor. And uh, the the guy... John Voight. John Voight, yeah. Mm. Natalie Portman. Yeah. Yeah, Natalie Portman. Very young Natalie Portman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can't imagine she'd done much at this no, time. No, had Leon already had... would have been about the same time, Leon, I would imagine. 
Yeah, probably, probably. probably just after Leon, actually, isn't mm. it? But so yeah, so you and the guy who has who went on to be in uh, Twenty Four, um, Dennis Haysbert. Yeah, the the guy in pro, uh, parole. Hmm. That is, I think, as you get older, that whole scenario, you just really feel for him in that, and when he sort of just finally throws. And it's tiny. Yeah. And right. again, I mean, like I said before, you know, it's probably something that actually, if you wanted to take some time out of the film, you cut him out because he's not in it that much. It's a, you no. know, he's, he has very distinct scenes. Um, I mean, obviously, you'd have to reshoot the the robbery without him being the driver, but it's just amazing. It's so, and it's key to. It's the first kind of emotion that you get as everything's starting to unfold. That that guy who so quickly we really liked and were really behind. Um, goes first yeah. is is just absolutely heartbreaking uh, William Fitchner is another um, I, I absolutely love William Fitchner and I pick him up on, in everything he's in but he's one of those actors who just appears in everything in I, I think tragically small roles um, but yeah it's an incredible um, cast um, and Danny Trejo who you would yeah who I I, I know you're a big fan of <laughs> <laughs> well he's one of those actors that he crops up everywhere you see him in a lot of different things. I couldn't well, even realize. He's also, I mean, he's usually a brute, isn't he? I mean, he's, yeah. us, he's usually a very, and, and he isn't in this. You no, know, he's he's, a, he's actually quite, he's quite a likable character, yeah, I find. He's a loving, I mean, ultimately, he, he sacrifices because he, himself because they've got his, I don't know if we know if it's his wife or his girlfriend, but. Um, Honourable, isn't it? And I think yeah, that's, that honor, can become that quite a theme thieves, yeah, is, is, in this film, mm. so. Do you know, I, I was thinking in advance of this, it's a great L.A. movie. There are certain movies which are very much kind of... Yeah. That, you know, and it's, well, it's a Michael Mann movie yeah. and he does absolutely celebrate L.A., doesn't he? He's totally. Absolutely. And it looks incredible, doesn't it? Yeah. The cinema, Who was his cinematographer? Was it Wally? Um, Fister, it, not it, the it, robot. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Dante Spinotti. Okay. Because there's the famous scenes, the blue kind of... Uh, filter when he's standing at that yeah I mean yeah. that's a look again that's another thing that you know actually is in an awful lot of those films now I mean if you make you know a cops and robbers film in a city it's going to have a bluey tint to it isn't it that was really something that kind of that he's very much established um, yeah the whole aesthetic of it I think is fantastic that opening shot it's a kind of abstract shot it's like is it like a tube station a, or something yeah. and it kind well, of shimmers LA, yeah. yeah it shimmers though doesn't it you know that you get a sense of the heat of the place and yeah. that's what I mean by it. it's like a real LA lights. yeah you you, you know you see lights before you really know what they are or what's going on yeah. Um, yeah and then that incredible shot just following De Niro through a hospital and yeah um, and again I mean now I go back to it and I just think that's such a fantastic cool you know, it's like a, a sort of Bourne-esque infiltration scene. He just is in complete control. He knows exactly where he's going. He just puts on the coat. He looks the part. He walks off with an ambulance and nobody's any the wiser. I remember at the time thinking, nothing's happening. Yeah. You know, exactly. Just talking back to what you were saying about it, it's something that you have to kind of be in the right frame of mind, but potentially in the right stage of life mm. um, to really get. It's uh, There's lots of... Well, I can see that that opening scene actually, and and when they um, uh, hijack the the security van, um, when they ram it off the road, I see a lot of parallels with the Dark Knight in terms yeah. of those opening sequences mm-hmm. and the pacing of it. It mm-hmm. feels very much like that, um, 
in fact, they share an actor, in fact, as well. Yeah. Um, William Butcher. Yeah, there you go. I don't know names. <laughs> <laughs> I don't usually either. But, but I'm just it's just that sense that all of a sudden we're in, we don't know who these people are. We don't know essentially what the premise of the film is going to be about. But here we are. There's there's an action scene to open us out. Yeah. Um, a hiss and a roar. Uh, yeah, in, in terms of writing, that's something I'm always a really big fan of. Yeah. That sense of actually the um, the faith in the audience that we're just going to drop you into the scene. You're not going to know who these guys are. You don't know whether they're good, whether they're bad. You're going to just find that out by watching it, but you're intelligent enough to work that out, yeah. um, which is possibly why, as, as kind of youngsters, we were lost by it. But, um, yeah, I, I love that. Um, I think that's, you know, that's a really mature... It's Michael Mann. He does a lot of that. Um, I think sometimes to the detriment of his audience, I think sometimes a lot of people will lose him because of that. Yeah. Um, but I do always like that he puts a lot of faith in the capacity of his audience to just get on board and understand what the hell's going on. Just let it wash over you a little bit. Yeah. Just allow it to, to run its course and see where it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah, as we're, as we're saying all that, I'm thinking the another, another interesting thing about it, though not specifically for this film, but um, it came out of another film. He had, I mean, I think it must be fairly unique in that sense that Michael Mann had already made this film um, and it was a, a far inferior version and somehow managed to convince the studio that he was going to do it better. So he'd made a made for TV movie. Is it a TV movie? I think so, yeah. Mm. I've, I've always assumed so. Um, called LA Takedown. With some of the same cast, some of the same cast in different roles, which is really weird. Um, obviously not De Niro or Pacino or any of those guys. Um, Xander Barkley, who plays the the affair, effectively, it's a which is a demeaning role, really, in this film. I mean, certainly, if you picked roles out of this film and said, you know, as an aspiring actor, who do you want to be? You don't really want to be that guy. He's the guy who, you know, goes up against Pacino, and that's not cool. Um, so he's Pacino in L.A. Takedown. Wow. He's the lead okay. role. Okay, I see. Which makes, actually, that role in Heat all the more extraordinary, because you think, having played that, I mean, I guess anybody's going to go... All right, Pacino's in the room. I'm going to step down, but I think it. I think it's a really uh, it's testament to him as an actor that he'll take a role like that just to be in a film that's that good, mm. having played, you know, Pacino's role. I always this. It's just a sort of funny little thing. But who do you think comes off better, Pacino or De Niro, in the acting stakes? Who who owns the movie for you? Pacino has the bigger role, right? But he has the louder role and, you know, he's Pacinoing it all over the place kind of thing. It's Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of the film. So for me, it is the defining Pacino role. Mm-hmm. Um, and he possibly then, or not, not immediately subsequently, he was obviously in quite a lot of films around that time, but he has subsequently um, slipped off radar quite a lot, whereas De Niro, for better or worse, and probably both, um, has, has stuck around a lot more. I think of it much more as Pacino. As Pacino's film. Yeah. yeah, I do, I think, yeah. I love De Niro's part, though, in this. I, love, I do. I he's love, just I love so cool. Obviously, they're, they're but I mean, great roles. I, I um, love I mean, the fact Pacino, he seems... Pacino, as you say, does that barking, and actually, whenever people talk about that aspect of his acting, this is the film. They, you know, he's got a great ass. You got your head right up it. <laughs> moment. You know, there's a few of those that are just great. Yeah. Um, and work i mean in the hands of a director who knows how to go yeah that's right i'll let him do that he he is overacting but he's overacting because the guy's overacting 
and there are other Pacino roles where he does exactly the same thing and you just find yourself going, oh, it's Pacino just being a bit too much and probably with a director who didn't dare go, I'll rein it in a bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's Pacino for me, but just because it suits the role so well. Um, De Niro's role is a much more understated character. Um, also, because Pacino gets that amazing shot at the end where he's at the hospital and everything has just gone to rat shit with his... Uh, with his marriage and then he gets the call and leaves anyway which you know at which point you're just going oh man it's just you know send another cop come on save your marriage but he won't because he's that guy and then he runs down that staircase and it's a i mean it's one of my favorite michael mann shots it's almost slow motion actually it's not it's not is it no, no i always think of it as being it? slow motion but it's not <laughs> um yeah it's brilliant and you know that your final act is really kicking off. I, I do feel, though, that De Niro has this quiet, intense intelligence about his character that I find is just so masterful. Yeah. Um, the, and it's, I'm not taking away anything from what you've said about Pacino. I completely agree. Um, but I did enjoy his mm. his performance in this film a lot. And, I, I mean, I'm quite a De Niro fan anyway. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there's an awful lot to like. Yeah. I mean, I always find, posthumously, I didn't really think about it at the time, he he gets together with Amy Brenneman, which, you know, is testament that... He's a pretty cool guy. He's a pretty cool guy, because <laughs> in real life, I'm I'm thinking, that's not happening. But mm. uh, he's so convincingly charismatic yeah. in this. God, yeah. There's just a very cool charisma about him that you just think, yep, fair enough, most people are going to see that and go, want to be with that guy, want to be that guy. Yeah, um, he's very cool. He's yeah. very he's very laid back, even you know despite all the odds. Um, when he when he lets go and you know he loses his rag, it's it's clear to see. But you can see it's it takes a while to build up to that point. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I find that great. It's great acting. The heist that goes wrong. Talking about this, my, one of my favourite parts of the De Niro character um, when um, Pacino and his crew are first onto them. And they're at the, uh, and they're at the heist, and they're like, we can't make a move until they actually do something. You know that all they're doing at the moment is just breaking into a building. I'm not, you know, going in for that. Yeah. Um, and De Niro standing outside, one of the guy, one of the um, cops in the in the van makes a noise, and De Niro hears it, and it's just again, uh, we've said this all the way through, but it's so underplayed. Mm. He just knows something's not right. It doesn't matter what it is, something's not right. And he just walks in, and that's it. It's off. We walk away, and he's just out of there. He knows. And you see all can't. that in like that. Um, not uh, night vision, don't you? Yeah. And and so his reaction isn't even like with a proper camera on it. No, either. absolutely. That's which is inc- an incredible. I mean, an incredible shot. It's it's very brave directing, but it's also testament to the actor that you can do that, and you can know that you're going to get away with it because his reaction is so yeah. palatable. Yeah. But yeah. Even in sort of re- reverse contrast night vision mm. you still know exactly what is going through his head and he processes it all and then yeah just shuts it down it's fantastic um yeah it's great i mean it's great writing it's great directing and it's great de niro work <laughs> love your work bobby that's the thing right <laughs> mm. de niro work yeah. yeah so that closing chase through the airport there's no mu- the the use of music there. It's just that Moby track, but it comes in really late, doesn't it? And all mm. you're hearing and seeing is like 
the planes going over and like the way that that casts the light and the shadows and stuff it's, it's all soundscape. kind of yeah. it's a brilliant soundscape isn't it? Yeah. well a lack of dialogue i mean we said you know that the music and the dialogue through this are, are very kind of dynamic um but yeah the lack of either at this stage is incredible um let's talk about the music because we have a composer here and we have i know you're a massive music fan sam so um what what do you make of the score Carl? um well obviously there's a, a lot of licensed tracks in the film as well yeah. so i won't necessarily talk about them because i think sam probably knows more about them than i do but in terms of uh elliot goldenthal's score it's it's a great um use of the techniques of that time um he uses everything since he even uses a guitar orchestra in there as well so you've got guitar stuff you've got synths and you've got some really great orchestral writing as well really pulls all the tricks out of the bag but never in a way that seems over the top um i think we briefly touched on it earlier like the well it helps blend it as well doesn't it i mean it's why he gets away with all the the, the different kind of styles of music cue that he does because you're never in my, to me you're never really sure and you never need to be sure i mean the music is just serving the film there's yeah. never a sense of Oh, we're in a, a music montage because a song has just come in. Yeah, there was no sense of a big theme carrying, yeah. and you know, there was no light motif there or anything that carries a particular character. And so, everything was very much underscoring action as it was happening. Like the shootout scene is just a rhythmic pulse. There's a lot of use of pulses and and sort of throbbing synth sounds and things that just heighten the tension rather than. Um, trying to create because nowadays it would be a very different score i think if they were made remade heat nowadays um which might happen uh they would they probably will. accompany it with a completely different type of score but it's it's amazing i mean the the sheer breadth of the score is um is is awesome it works really really well there was no point that i ever felt that the score sits too high and uh plays down the action or contradicts the action at any point but you'd obviously you'd expect that at this level anyway um but everything complements the visual style really really well so and in terms of the licensed music and um, we were mentioning it we we're talking outside of here about the fact that there's u2 with brian eno um there's a moby track in there as well and and you know some of the others as well sam yeah but it's as you were saying it's it, it's sort of fits seamlessly and it I mean that that Moby track that got the God moving over the face of the water that mm -hmm. it, you know it it's all quite kind of homogenous as a score it's really all kind of there's a lot of different yeah, stuff it feels but like I didn't really I probably wouldn't at that stage have known who Moby was at all and I, if you'd asked me it wouldn't have occurred to me that that was a track I wouldn't have thought it was you know anything no, other than just part of the score there's a lovely the Carlos um, Quartet are in the yeah, school Carlos aren't Quartet they at a point again kind of, where we didn't really know who they were yeah Lisa Gerrard yeah, is in. I mean, you know, she's going to go on to. I think the scene where and things. they find a uh, find Al Pacino's stepdaughter in the bath. I think that's the Lisa Gerrard right, yeah. cue right there. It's a really beautiful cue, actually. And um, he's used her in other things as well. In, um, the Insider has got a lot of Lisa Gerrard yeah. in it. Yeah, really well used. But it's nice to see a director not just sticking with a composer and um, using a range of sources for different music that fits. Uh, it plays very well for the film. It, the film um, works very well because of the I've choice of the, music. I've got the soundtrack actually of, on IMDb up here. Uh, Willie Morbit, before, oh, yeah. certainly before yeah, I right. would have known who Willie Morbit was, yeah. um, is in there. Yeah, extraordinary. And uh, the, the interesting thing is it's hard to know exactly where 
um, the composer's job has ended and some of the licensed music is coming in because it's all so subtly done. Um, you'd expect that with composer's music, but the, the way that they've mixed the sound, it just feels right. Mm. Everything feels balanced. Um, certainly with certain action films, having a big score that sits above everything else can work really well. Um, I think Interstellar is probably an example of a modern interpretation of a film where the score is actually really intensely loud at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but this fits this film perfectly. So, Yeah, you wouldn't mix it like that now. No. That's not how they make them now. Which leaves me to thank Carl Cole and Sam Hode for joining me, and thank you for listening. Don't forget, you can email us at podcast at sonicfruit.co.uk or you can tweet at us via at sonic underscore fruit. The Sonic Fruit Film Podcast is produced by Sonic Fruit with music by Carl Cole and engineering by Jake Kenny and Jordan Brett. For more information, check out sonicfruit.co.uk. Thank you.